You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. music means it's time for the davis garden show this is don shore and this is lois richter on a bright beautiful sunny but windy day in davis we've got a red flag warning until 5 p.m friday we're recording this program on tuesday october 21st 2020 and it will be broadcasting october 22nd temperature right now is a lovely 70 degrees going up to a high today of 89 which i think has been typical for the last couple days here we are in the third week of october Last week, the temperatures were in the mid to upper 90s pretty much all week, getting a dramatic change this week. 89 degrees today, Tuesday, as the show broadcast is going to drop. This is Wednesday. Whatever, yeah. (laughs) When the show broadcasts, you're right. The show broadcasts on Thursday, the high is only going to be 81. And Thursday night, we're going to drop below 50 degrees for the first time this season. It'll be 49 degrees on Thursday night. Friday is going to be sunny and 80 degrees. Friday night, 48 degrees. Saturday is going to be mostly sunny and going to drop down to 74. Unbelievably perfect gardening weather. And Saturday night is going to be 47. So we're getting into some actual average temperatures for this time of year for the first time in the month of October. Sunday is looking like about a, hold on to your hats, folks, 67 degrees as the What? That's the high? And Sunday night will be 44. Monday, high will be 69. And Monday night, the low will be 43. So we're going to be a dramatic change in weather. And people here in Northern California and the Sacramento Valley are not going to be used to it because we just had six, eight weeks of above average temperature practically seemed like the whole time. We were in the upper 90s as little as a week ago. So the extended discussion shows a cold upper level trough uh, pushing our way. There's going to be a significant amount of cold air with this trough pulling in. If this were December, we'd be talking about freezing temperatures, but it's October, so we're just talking about low temperatures. As they uh, say here at the Weather Service, Sunday night will be quite chilly, falling into the teens over the Sierra, the mountains, and into the 40s in the valley. And the cold air in place over the Sierra and over Nevada will likely enhance some of the gusty downslope winds Sunday night. Wind will be the main impact of the trough, but a few light rain and snow showers will be possible in the high Sierra I-80 South Sunday. So, It's uh, not a lot of rainfall up there, but we are getting a dramatic change in the weather compared to what we've been having here. Hey, let's talk about some of the other great programming here at KDRT. Each week on Celtic Songlines, you can join host David Reynolds and explore the timeless sound of traditional, ancient, and contemporary music from around the Celtic world, featuring artists celebrating the traditions of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, English, England, and other Celtic lands. Tune in on Catered 95.7 FM or stream at catered.org. That's Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to noon with replay time Wednesday evening from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. Music shows are archived for two weeks. You can check them out at catered.org. Look for Celtic song lines and you can listen to the last two weeks right on your computer. And those shows which are not music shows such as ours are not restricted to just two weeks. They're archived forever. 
<laughs> That's correct. Go all the way back to 2005 with the Davis Garden Show at kdrt.org. So for our public service announcement today, it's the UC Davis Arboretum, and we did something a little unusual. Lois called them, and here's what they say. Our staff is working remotely and can be reached by email at arboretum at ucdavis.edu. Voicemail messages will be returned as soon as possible. To protect your health and to follow state, county, and university protocols due to the COVID-19 virus, the Arboretum and Public Garden will not be holding any in-person events for the foreseeable future. If you're contacting us about plant sales, there will be no in-person plant sale events this fall. Instead, sales will happen later this fall via an online ordering system with scheduled curbside pickup at the Arboretum Teaching Nursery. Sales will be for friends, members, Everyone else is invited to join or renew. Please visit our website for announcements about when our plant sales will begin later this fall. We also recommend that you subscribe to our e-newsletter for up-to-date notifications. You can do that on our website at arboretum.ucdavis.edu slash subscribe. The Arboretum and other campus landscapes remain open to visitors. If you visit, please observe social distancing, wear a mask, and follow all safety instructions for the health of our entire community. We hope you will have the opportunity to enjoy nature and the beauty of the Arboretum. In case of emergency, call 911. For facility issues, call 530-752-1655. For, for you houseplant people, I was looking at the weather data and some of the um, uh, weather sites tell me what the solar radiation input is. We are right now just about half of solar radiation compared to midsummer. So our sunlight is waning. That's where we are at about 38 degrees north latitude in Davis, California. Those of you further north, obviously the change has been even more dramatic. So keep this in mind, you know, the, the daily input of sunlight, even through your windows, has dropped significantly. Another interesting data point is, of course, you get further into your room, it drops by another half. And you get further across the room, it drops by another half. So, so house plants are perhaps showing some effect of lower light input. And we don't have any clouds here. We haven't seen a cloud in, in weeks. Those of you where cloud cover is a factor, that's gonna reduce input for house plants even more. The main issue, main difference this makes is they need less frequent watering. They're not photosynthesizing as much. You've got less solar input and the plants may be starting to show some stresses perhaps because of lower light, especially if they're further into the room and a plant that would prefer moderate to high light. Might be a good time for some of your house plants to migrate closer to the windows. Um, and we can lay to rest yet again the myth that sunlight direct through the window onto your house plant is a bad idea. No, I've got a it's, it's not a bad idea for most Plants. I've got a new collection of African violets and their cousins. I've got some cholerias and uh, streptocarpus and a couple miniature African violets. I had them out in my greenhouse. Uh, now, this is just an unheated pop-up greenhouse. You all need to know that those don't stay that warm at night. They heat up a lot during the day if there's sunlight on them, but they get down to just a few degrees above the outside temperature at night. They're just thin plastic. And I was looking at these temperatures and where we were going, so I decided to bring them in. They're sitting in my kitchen where there is direct sunlight on them for about two hours in the early part of the afternoon. That's fine. 
Uh, people get very concerned about plants with direct sun through the window burning the leaves. I can't think of any where that would be a particular problem. Usually it's pretty transient. It's uh, you know an hour here or an hour there. And uh, as we get into this time of year, most of them would probably benefit from it. When plants come into our garden center, house plants right now are really hot. I mean, they're selling like crazy. So we have to try and figure out where to put them when we get a delivery every five to seven days. And we focus on the areas near the windows and doors so that those plants will be in as bright a light as we can provide them in our garden center for as long as we have to hold them. Upstairs, we have uh, skylights and for plants that really need brighter light and are going to make this transition from greenhouse to our shop to your house, we put them directly under the skylight so there's literally directly sunlight on plants like ficus, which definitely will show results, adverse results if they suddenly go to a much lower light status. So keep that in mind. You buy a plant, it was growing in a very bright greenhouse. It then went to a store where hopefully, if they're a good retailer, they put it in pretty good bright light if they possibly can do that. Then you take it home and suddenly the light input for that plant drops not just 50%, sometimes 75, 80% because of where you put it in your house. It's going to adjust to that but it can be a rather dramatic adjustment. And in the case of something like a fiddle leaf fig or the weeping fig, the ficus benjamina, you may get some leaf drop. You might get pretty significant leaf drop. It's best if you can acclimate it gradually to a lower light, even if that corner is where you really want a house plant, I wouldn't necessarily put it there right away. We have these conversations with people all the time, a lot of young college students coming to town and wanting house plants. And once they describe their situation, we steer them in many cases towards Golden Pothos, Sansevieria, an easy easy plant, because that's one you can stick in that corner and it won't be adversely affected by that dramatic change in light status. So when he talks about the ficus, uh, Benjaminer, uh, doing things, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how how much you change or how little you change this thing just wants to stay where it is yes. so if i take it and i move it into another room boom, yep. it drops all its leaves but oh. then the new leaves come out just fine and then and then they're growing in the new climate for it and so then they're fine so he says change it slowly i say that's good for lots of plants but for the ficus benjamina eh just do it all at once because every time you change it, it's going to lose all its leaves. Well, I'm not, gonna, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to encourage people to do things to their ficus that cause them to lose all their leaves. The main thing is when you do that change, uh, it's going to use a lot less water. And most people, the most common error with houseplants, we'll get into houseplants a little bit more later in the program, but the most common error with houseplants is watering too frequently. It'll really be dramatic if you take a brand new plant, put it in much lower light, and then water it too often. There's a real risk of root rot. So we've talked about the weather, we've talked about um, uh, other shows, other programs, and uh, we've done a little quick PSA there for the Arboretum. We got a bunch of questions that came into my store, questions and comments and things like that. And um, where do you can want to begin, start, Lois? Can we start with houseplants? Because we were just talking about houseplants. Yeah. I wanted to make, by the way, one comment to you. And this, this may be unusual but the one plant that i had that did not like having any direct sunlight on it was the angel wing begonia hmm. and i had this giant one sitting next to on the wall next to the window and every time a one of the stalks would lean over because this plant just likes to, to lean over it would lean over and would get in to where the sun could hit on it and the leaves would shrivel up and die 
The rest of the plant was fine. It was very bizarre. They can they can acclimate to brighter light. And I've had, I mean, I have a whole bunch of begonias on my front porch. And this is very timely with nights dropping into the 40s and an old rule of thumb we use at our garden center. If you have these truly tropical or subtropical plants outside, night temperatures in the 40s are when you need to start thinking about what you're going to do. Um, and that goes for some of the succulents too. And for those of you living in places where the night temperatures have already gotten there, well, you better make some quick decisions. We've got a little more time here. We usually, in the Sacramento Valley, don't get our first frost until around Thanksgiving. It's been so consistent over the years that I find that a useful rule of thumb. Well, that's five weeks away, six weeks away. A place where we were in the mid to upper 90s a week ago, it's hard to imagine we'll be down to a frost in just five weeks. But this period from mid-October to late November is probably the most dramatic change in temperature that we experience in the valley. It's when we go down several 10 degrees or more average daytime high. And we do typically get our light frost sometime around the third or fourth week of November. That's getting late really for a tropical or subtropical plant. They're actually harmed in the 40s, um, although the harm is reversible. Frost would be you know, practically devastating. I know individuals who keep ficus schifflera outside in the winter here in USDA zone nine sunset zones eight, nine, and 14. They're taking advantage of microclimates. Those are hardy-ish on the end of house plants. In other words, there's a spectrum of house plants from true tropicals like your philodendrons and your pothos to the ones that are rather more rugged and can tolerate lower temperatures like the ficus. But in harder years or colder years where we've had freeze events and those plants are outside, did significant damage. So you're taking a risk when you leave something like a ficus outside. You're taking a real risk when you leave a philodendron or anything like that outside. So, and begonias are kind of in that category for the most part. Well, there's um, someone, Jan, who sent us a picture and, and was describing how she keeps her coleus. Now, coleus are something that's not going to make it outdoors. No. And so she takes, um, snips the, the stem of the coleus, takes off all the lower leaves, just leaves a few little leaves on the top, puts it in a vase and keeps it inside all winter. And she said it roots in the vase. And by springtime, when it's nice and warm, she can go and put it back out and it can be outside all year. And she does it every year. Yeah, coleus is a plant that will go down to 31 degrees and just turn to mush. It's like impatience. It, it's a stem that's succulent, not like a xeric or dry adapted succulent, but it's a stem that retains moisture, lots of water. And if it freezes, it just turns to mush. It's kind of entertaining to watch. But uh, right now is a great time if you still have some particularly nice ones that you like that are outside that you've been using as bedding plants, which has kind of been the pattern with coleus the last few years. People are using them as outdoor shade color. Uh, snips and cuttings, uh, the picture was great. You just, just tug off, break off the leaves on the bottom few inches, make sure there's a couple of nodes, the place where the leaf was in the water and put them in a vase and they will root right in front of you. And once they root, you can go ahead and pot them up. You don't have to do the water part. You can do them right in soil. Coleus are very, very easy to grow from cuttings. They're in the mint family. Good generalization, anything in the mint family is very, very easy to root. They put out nodes, uh, put out roots at the node almost no matter what you do, whether it's the garden mint that's out in your, in your shade garden that's running all over the place, rooting everywhere it touches the ground, or something like a coleus. So if there's a particular variety you like and you want to hang on to it, you can bring it indoors and have it in a vase. You can pot it up. Coleus, of course, has been a traditional, popular houseplant. It's just that the growers are now selling them as outdoor plants as well. So if there's one you really want to save, I would say 
the third week of October would be a great time to take that cutting and get it going. And as I say, if you're in a hurry, you don't have the soil handy, uh, a vase is a great way to do it. You can watch the roots form there. I would put it in the brightest place you have indoors. And the lower light it's in, the more likely it is to rot rather than root. Uh, but if you put it like right in a sunny window, it can just be kind of like a, a lovely flower arrangement and you'll watch them root and begin to grow. This one thing to remember, when you root things in water, they've always said this and I've certainly observed it, the roots that form are more weakly attached than roots that would have formed in say perlite and peat moss or a more traditional rooting medium. So as you transplant them, just handle them with care. Some of them may break off as you're putting them in the new soil. That's fine, new roots will also form. Uh, but coleus is one of the easiest ones. In many of your house plants, I have a big old hanging uh, red tradescantia, inch plant, uh, wandering Jew, a bunch of different common names for that. It stays outside all winter. It's in a sheltered location. It's actually hardy enough in our zone to live outside anyway. But if I want to start new ones, this is a great time to do it. Same principle. You can do it in water. You can do it in soil. You can do it if you want to really want it. You know, you want to grow some for a bunch of friends and you want to be absolutely sure they're all going to root. Then use a basically sterile medium like a seed starting mix. But that's not absolutely essential for any of these types of houseplants. And the philodendron group, you can see right where the root is. They're already forming them typically. So we've got a, we had a big pothos plant that fell off the shelf and broke at our shop. And it was too much of a hassle to put it back in a pot. So we just cut off all the branches, jammed them in a pickle jar with water and set it in the window near the cash register about six weeks ago. And they're all rooting and filling the pickle jar with roots. And whenever we get around to it, we'll go ahead and pop those up again. So you can do this quickly. You can do it easily in water. You can do it more formally using a traditional rooting medium, whatever you want to do. But many of these things root quite readily and you can start new plants that way. So, uh Usually, there's a segue that you, you say something and that leads me into talking about something else. <laughs> well, to time, today we have, we have a split. We could talk about the hardiness of succulents, or we could talk about potting soil, or we could talk about overpotting, which is a term that's really weird. So well, let's start with succulents. Yeah, since that? we're talking about bringing things in and cold issues, that would be probably the first issue is which succulents you need to be concerned about. And this depends on where you're listening, obviously. You know, there's many places where almost all of them would be too tender to grow outside. Uh, I know that there are some that are hardy, but for the most part, those of you in, let's say, New York or Montreal, you probably know that your succulents are going to kind of turn to mush. Exceptions, I'll go ahead and mention the exceptions in, in very cold climates. Sedums, in general, which are usually sold under the name stone crop, are considered hardy. Some of the new delispermas are hardy, but uh, you would probably need to investigate locally. Here in USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zones 8, 9, and 14, some really popular succulents are not reliably hardy out of doors, but can make it through in a sheltered location. They're kind of on that end of the spectrum. And a good example is aloe vera, you know, very popular indoor plant, uh, but here we usually grow it out of doors. That's the one that's used medicinally for cuts and burns and things like that. Plenty of hardy aloes that we can grow. There's lots of really cool aloes for the landscape, and those have become a very popular trend recently. But that particular one, is not really hardy in our climate zone. So you either need to bring it indoors and find a very bright location for it, or at the very least, move it right close to the house where it will be protected from both cold and, and rain. And the combination of cold and wet is the usual lethal thing for succulents. They get cold, they get a little injury from frost, and then it rains and the rain is a little warmish, so bacterial rots can set in. Next thing you know, your plant has turned to mush. So finding a place that's slightly sheltered and dry 
can make a big difference for something like aloe vera. If you do bring those succulents in, where do you put them? Does it matter? The brightest place you have. Yeah, because that's the brightest place you have. Succulents in general are not great indoor plants. We have to say this over and over again at our store because they're wildly popular right now with a demographic that also likes houseplants. And we know that a lot of these folks that are buying them are wanting to grow them as indoor plants. And for the most part, succulents are really better with bright light outdoors. But it, right in your windowsill is typically great for any of those, including your aloe vera and your jade plant. Uh, everybody knows jade plant. That's a popular one. Southern Californians kind of laugh when they move up here to Northern California and see people fussing to grow a little tiny jade plant in their window because down there they're a, you know, a hedge. <laughs> but, <laughs> and they bloom in the middle of the winter, but they're tender at about 30 degrees. You're going to get pretty significant damage on a jade plant. So it should be closer to the house or probably indoors. And there's a whole group of plants called Kalanchoa. K-A-L-A-N-C-H-O-E with the two dots over the E. I've heard it pronounced a variety of ways, but Kalanchoa is how I learned it. And the best known ones are the panda plant, uh, felt plant. These are fuzzy leaf plants. And they're definitely tender at about 30, 31 degrees. So they would need to come in. Right now, really popular plant is String of Pearls, a really hot item with, among younger buyers. Definitely would be damaged if it's outside below about 31, 32 degrees. So that should come indoors. And it's a pretty good house plant. You can put that one in a sunny window and find it'll probably do just fine. And if you're still trying to grow living stones, the lithops, they better come indoors too. Uh, everybody kills them, so they've kind of fallen out of favor, but definitely should, should be protected from frost and rain. So the thing to remember for next year <laughs> is before Halloween, move the fuzzies inside and move the jade plants to the porch. Yeah, and we go out in our, in our shop where I have 20 or 30 flats of succulents all the time, and we start sorting them kind of casually in October. So the calanchoas and the jades are in a flat together. We have found many years, given that our succulent display is very close to our building, we have a big two-story barn, and it shelters things from the rain because of where it is, <clears throat> and it gets morning sun, and it faces east, so it warms up early on a cold day. Most winters, that's okay, that's sufficient, at least for the jade plants and almost for the calanchoas. But just to keep them from looking rough, uh, if I see we're gonna have a real cold, clear night with the likelihood of temperatures dropping to around 30, we'll just pick up that flat and bring it inside for the night. We may put it back out the next day. Uh, the the, the trade-off is if you bring them in, you've gone to that much lower light status and they start putting out weaker leaves and things like that. So in our climate, we prefer to leave them out if we possibly can. But we will, we'll, you know, if it's in the 40s at sunset and it's still and clear, we know we're going to drop down probably to 29 or 30 that night. That's a night that's likely to have a frost. So we just grab a couple of those things and bring them in to protect them in the building. If we hear on the radio um, that there's a cold air mass moving our way, a freeze type event, we go a little further. We may bring some other plants in, and succulents are some of the first things we look at because of the damage that can be done by temperatures in the mid-20s. Uh, that's going to do a lot of damage to some succulents. So we have to use our judgment on it. We leave them out if we possibly can, but Halloween's our cutoff date, and the fuzzies and the jades come closer to the building or indoors if necessary. Okay. So the second set of the split, of that uh, segue split, was talking about potting soil. Yeah. So when you say you're going to pot up a plant, so I've, I've put this, this snippet in a base, it's got some roots, and I'm putting it in a plant, now I'm going to put it in another plant, and I'm going to, here it is, in my house, in a planter with 
something in the pot. What is it that I'm putting in the pot? Some kind of dirt in the pot. Potting soil? Well, let's back up to a couple of our basic principles about container soils and, and, and potting. One is that um, when someone is buying a houseplant from us, and we use our judgment, but most of them are novice gardeners, we often offer to transplant it right then, right then for them. Choose a, it's, The grower, we've said this many times before, the grower has gotten it to its maximum size in the container they're selling it in. You're buying it in a six-inch pot. They've grown it in a greenhouse. It's fully rooted. It may be root-bound. And it's got a nice big top and they're using a soil mix that irritates me because it's hard for home gardeners to manage. They're high in peat moss or high in coir, which is a coconut fiber. And that's a, it's difficult to judge the watering on that. So I always urge people to find a potting soil they like and try to gradually get all of your house plants into that potting soil, unless it's something that has a unique special requirement, like say an orchid or something like that. Uh, so find one that you like that works well with your watering style. Lois waters her plants once a week, right? Yep. So they all better be adapted to that or they're not going to make the cut. <laughs> it's sort of survival of the fittest at Lois's house. And I do very much the same thing when I have house plants inside. Wednesday's watering day. I've seen that on houseplant forums so commonly that it, it seems to be a formula that works for a lot of people. Well, that isn't going to work if some of them are in soil mixes that drain out really fast and don't hold water and others retain a lot of moisture. We talked before about this study I saw where they tested 25 plus potting soils for water retention and the amount of water retained after they put on a certain amount ranged from 20% to 90%. Uh, from different soil mixes, and you don't know when you buy it where it is on that spectrum with, with regard to retention of water. You do, to reiterate another thing we say very commonly, you do get what you pay for with potting soil. So buy one that is good quality. You absolutely shouldn't try to bargain shop for potting soils because they can have a lot of, I'll say junk in them. They can have some sort of extraneous compost or something. They're going to they're gonna cut corners on the things like peat moss or coir that are important in there. Even though I've talked about the problems with those, they're gonna cut corners on the amount of those because those are the expensive parts of the potting soil. And the other main thing is labeling in our industry is not standardized. When you go into particularly like a discount, you know, or, or a big box store as we call them, Lowe's or Home Depot, there'll be 14 different things in front of you with names like garden soil, planting mix. Well, those aren't potting soils. Those are for you to use in your garden. And if you use them as a potting soil, they're going to be problems because they tend to be very, very heavy on compost or, or what I call filler rather than the ingredients of a good potting soil. So just to reiterate those, you get what you pay for, get used to a good brand, kind of stick with it and try to more or less standardize what you're using. Um, and then we'll always say, uh, we'll be happy to repot that for you, which seems to come as an enormous surprise to these young folks. And it's a really simple thing to do. They don't have a place to store potting soil. They don't know how to do it. They've never gone about it before. We're happy to have them watch us when we do it. And almost any garden center will do this. So if you're buying a house plant for someone, ask, do you think this needs to go to a bigger pot? And uh, typically we'll tell you yes, and go up two to four inches in diameter maximum. I don't want you going any bigger than that for a rather important reason, which is that it tends to encourage overwatering or, or keeping the soil too wet and damaging the roots. And we'll, we'll go into that overpotting thing yeah. a little more in depth a little later in the show. But when you're getting this and you're choosing a potting soil, now the one I know that you have recommended that I have settled on is something called a citrus mix. Yeah. That's, and and I, I don't have any citrus in the house. Right. And yet, 
that's that's the bag that you pointed at me to. Why? Yes. And we sometimes are using cactus mix and people, you know, potting up succulents for people, and then they have a house plant. Well, yeah, this is also fine for your house plant. The uh, first of all, citrus are grown as house plants. Um, many of our listeners we know are growing them in places where they can't live outdoors, and so citrus mix is a houseplant mix in their situation. Um, citrus mix has added materials for drainage. They have made, they've usually added some more sand, some more pumice, some more lava rock, something, perlite, typically more in the pumice and lava rock category to enhance the drainage, reduces the likelihood of overwatering. It's also heavier, so it anchors the plant better. And um, the, our, our citrus mix is actually called citrus and tropical mix. Well, house plants are tropical, so that's good. Right. <laughs> okay, so it, it fits for them. We also sell a regular potting soil. Every nursery, every hardware store has a brand that's just labeled potting soil. Ours is Edna's Best. There's Happy Frog, Fox Farm. They're all out there. And you'll also see some premium ones that are clearly aimed at a particular market of people who are growing a particular annual crop in it. And those are different. Uh, they tend to be much higher in organic material. Recipe 420 is one that we have. Fox Farm and uh, Happy Frog have others. They're aimed at the cannabis growers. And they want lots of organic fertilizer and a higher organic component in their potting soil. For a houseplant, they work. I've used them. But you're higher likelihood of getting fungus gnat problems in those just because of the amount of compost that's in them. So either a regular sort of all-purpose potting soil or ones if you have a tendency to rot plants by overwatering them, uh, the citrus mix is great because it drains faster or the cactus and succulent mixes drain faster. Every company that makes these has a giant pile of the ingredients. Three basic things that go into every potting soil, peat moss or coir, sand, compost. Compost is the variable that is the, the, the biggest cost difference for them. They can get really cheap stuff or more fully composted. That's the difference that your better quality soils make. Then they add things to them to enhance the drainage. And so they believe that cactus, succulent, citrus, African violets, bonsai, require some special drainage additives. So they'll have a little pile of pumice or lava rock that they'll blend in with that basic core potting soil mix. You don't want to do all this, like buy one bag of stuff for your bonsai, one bag for your citrus or whatever. You can just buy your regular potting soil. And if you think it needs a little extra drainage, you can buy small bags of pumice or lava rock or perlite. And any of those will enhance the drainage of any soil you get at about a one part to three parts ratio. So you can make your own formula. I have my own formulas for different potting soils. But the reality is that any good company selling a good quality potting soil, it'll be fine. If you're a, an overwaterer, get something with a little faster drainage like the citrus mix or the cactus mix. All right. Thank you, Don. I, that was very helpful, very clear. Buy one potting soil for your house plants and pot everything into it, except the orchids. Except orchids are, are, are epiphytes and grow just in bark, or actually the company that sells most of them are selling them in moss. I mean, they're a little different. And in, in cases of things like bonsai or cactus, it just enhance the drainage if you don't want to buy something specially for them. One thing that's also been a big change over the last decade in potting soils is that almost all the better manufacturers are adding some kind of fertilizer. And so if you have a plant that you've kept in a pot for years, maybe it's time to give it some fertilizer. But for the most part, the, the types they're using are either slow-acting synthetic fertilizers, osmocote-like materials, or uh, organic fertilizers, in which case they give about a full year's worth of feeding. And so you don't really need to fertilize your house plants. And I've seen more problems from overfeeding, honestly, 
that I have from lack of fertilizer. So for the most part, if you just bought it and just transplanted it, you don't need to add any fertilizer for months or perhaps even a full year. That might be about the time to replant it, in which case, again, you don't have to, you don't, you don't really need to be feeding on a regular basis, except things like orchids, which are in bark. Most people who grow them do feed them regularly because the bark doesn't retain much in the way of nutrients. So, you know, you might have a specialized situation like that. For the most part, though, your houseplants, they're fine with what's in the soil, unless, like the ficus that are in the background of Lois's studio there, they've been in the same pot for, I don't know, five years? Fifteen. Yeah. Fifteen years. Okay, a little fertilizer might be good for that. <laughs> I, I I figured that out a couple of years ago when you convinced me that I really should do something. So I, I put a little bit of that liquid fertilizer in, not every time I water, but maybe once a month or so. One of the things you run into is that yellowing leaves will happen on, on house plants. It's normal. You know, these are tropical plants that are getting lower light. So a common thing is to shed some leaves, just part of the natural growth cycle. If you go online to houseplant forums, which are a wealth of misinformation if someone will jump in and tell you to fertilize and that's almost certainly not what you need that's all i mean it probably won't hurt if you follow the label directions on the fertilizer but you don't have a plant food issue you probably have a overwatering issue or a drainage issue or something like that or it's just time for that leaf to be replaced yeah it's natural there's some shedding people look too closely at their house plants I, I swear i tell myself that at least a couple times a week there's a little tiny blemish on the leaf what do i do about it um, <laughs> ignore it <laughs> yeah okay well that's i think that's enough about house plants for right now yep. can i ask you a question about about fall gardens yes it is now the third week of October, um, and well, I I didn't plant my seeds, mm -hmm. so is is it too late for me to fill that big old pot up with the potting soil that's sitting out next to it and put the seeds in and hope they grow? No, it's not too late to plant fall and winter vegetables here. In fact, there's things that we plant all the way through the winter and into February. Uh, it's too late for your Brussels sprouts. I know you're disappointed. Uh, it's too late for your rutabagas because they really need to get going in July or August. And big old heads of broccoli like Romanesco, which is really more of a cauliflower, or the old-fashioned broccoli, or the old-fashioned cauliflower. You should probably have gotten them started earlier, or else they're just going to sit through and you're not going to harvest till the end of February, early March. But everything else, all the other things we like to sell, the broccoli rob, the sprouting types of broccoli, the smaller headed types, all the leafy stuff, the lettuces, the kale, the spinach, the Swiss chard. Uh, what am I forgetting? Um, collards. Peas. Hmm? peas. Well, peas, yeah. I mean, uh, those, are, those can all go in just fine here. And the way I do it at my store is that what's on the seed rack is what you can plant now because that's just easier for us and for the staff. But uh, one of the things we do run into, and this is an important note for California gardeners, seed packets are useless in terms of the information they give you because they all say the same thing. Plant X number of days or weeks after danger of frost is passed. That's not an issue for cool season vegetables for us. We plant them fully aware that frost is going to happen while they're growing and it's not going to hurt them at all. I answer this question multiple times a week. I plant lettuce now, is it going to freeze? No, we're in USDA zone nine, we're in sunset zones eight, nine, and 14, um, and anywhere Above that, zone, sunset zones 15 to 24, you can continue to plant those because 30 degrees, 29 degrees, 28 degrees, not only will it not harm any of those cool season vegetables, as we call them, in some cases, like kale, collards, it'll improve the flavor. 
the starches convert to sugar in cold weather and they actually taste sweeter if you can believe that it makes kale better uh, so we still have plenty of time to get them going and the soil is still plenty warm since it was 98 degrees last week so they'll come up quickly they'll grow quickly if you want to harvest faster than often at this point and going into November, people will plant a combination of little seedlings that they buy, you know, little starts and six packs and some seed. You can certainly still direct seed carrots, direct seed radishes. You can direct seed the regular turnips, the rutabagas, it's too late, I think, but regular turnips are fine. So a mix of things from seed, beets, throw them in, and some that you buy just to get a little bit of a head start would probably be your best way to go. And you can continue that here right on through November. There's actually no reason you can't plant in December except that we're often overcast and rainy so plants won't make a lot of growth. But no, the low temperatures are not gonna be an issue. Um, I have a question about bamboo. Is this a good time to ask you? Yep. Okay, this is from Priscilla. Don, I am appealing to you as a world-class bamboo expert. Can the leaf litter from bamboo keep other plants from growing normally? Um, to the best of our knowledge, no. What she's describing there is the phenomenon that has been observed in the natural world called allelopathy, allelopathy, where the leaf debris or the roots from a particular plant put a toxin in the soil, suppress the growth of other plants. Very famously known for that to some degree are walnuts. Allelopathic responses are often overstated. You talk about black walnuts on various forum groups and people will jump in and tell you that they're gonna poison all your plants, blah, blah, blah. No, that is a real phenomenon with the walnuts. We know that they do put a toxin in the soil. We know what it is. We know it comes from the leaves as well. As far as we know, no, bamboo doesn't do that. What bamboo has, even the non-invasive types, even the clumping types, have extensive, dense rhizome roots that compete very effectively because they're shallow. They compete for nutrients, especially nitrogen, and they compete for water, really effectively compete for water. Most bamboo come from periods of very high intermittent rainfall. They're mostly adapted to monsoon climates where they get massive amounts of rain during one period of their growth cycle. And so their roots go out as far as they can. They can take in that water very quickly. Uh, these are plants that will expand those, what you see as a shoot turning into a culm very, very rapidly. I grew an example on my property here in pretty cold climate for bamboo, relatively speaking, a beaches bamboo where I would see the shoots in the ground in late September, big fat shoots. And by the end of October, that was a 35 foot comb. So 35 feet in 30 days is what it's expanding. That's a pretty rapid rate of growth. So it's doing that based on an ample supply of water that is taking up through a root system that's pretty extensive and competitive for water uptake. So my guess is that the plant that she was having trouble with, which I think was a fig tree, right? Uh, you, have, uh, you didn't send me that part of the message. Okay. Yeah, she's had a fig tree that just wasn't growing and it was right next to the bamboo. It's probably just getting out competed, aside from being possibly shaded by the bamboo, by the root system. And my suggestion there, since figs are adaptable, tough Mediterranean species that ultimately can certainly hold their own, was to make more of a watering basin around that tree, water it specially, make sure it's getting water on its own. A little fertilizer in the spring, early summer would help get a little extra growth on it. Um, and I'm guessing in the long run, a fig and a bamboo will be very compatible and a lovely combination. But bamboo do have root systems that are well known for being aggressive. People know the runners, and those are you know expanding on their root systems, but even the clumpers have these amazing roots. We had a 
45 foot tall clump of bamboo taken out on our property, a non-invasive type. Uh, but we had to have, have it moved because we we're putting in a shop. And a bulldozer operator took it out. It took him two and a half hours with a bulldozer to take out this clump of bamboo. And I have a picture of it when he finally had it on its side and was lifting it up in the, the bucket of the bulldozer. And it had about a two foot deep root system. That's it for a plant that was 45 feet tall. And it only went out a little bit past the clump, but sufficiently dense that almost nothing would grow there. And there's a lot of discussion amongst bamboo experts about what you can plant under your bamboo or with your bamboo because of the competitive root systems. What you need is plants that have equally competitive root systems like asparagus fern, Nandina, Sarcococca, Ruscus. I mean, these are plants that can take not just the shade, but also have good strong roots that can hold their own against the competition from the bamboo. Would grasses work, like some of those ornamental fountain-type clumps of grasses? Yeah, some would. I mean, there's a Japanese forest grass, Hakonakloa, which is a beautiful grass that grows in the shade. The thing to remember is bamboo is ultimately going to cast a lot of shade over whatever is growing underneath it. So you need both an understory plant that can live in what we call bright shade. It's kind of a, the, the sunlight is filtered through the bamboo leaves, but it's usually not as dense as, say, a, a mulberry or a sycamore tree. Uh, but it's, it's bright shade, and they can also hold their own on the roots and are compatible with the watering. So some of the, some of the grasses would work. Turf lily, the liriope, or the mondo grass would probably work. I mean, you've got to choose your plants fairly carefully. But yeah, some plants will grow under bamboo. I don't think there's any effect from the leaves. I think it's just something that has, has to be something that's got a good sturdy root system. I've seen ferns look very nice with bamboo, for example. And those running kinds of ground covers, like you've got in your yard Australian violet. Uh, that'll not only grow out underneath bamboo and other things like that, as the leaf debris breaks down and makes this wonderful mulch, which bamboo does just like any other leafy plant, uh, they'll root into that and they'll benefit from it. So you could do sweet violets, you could do Australian violets, you could do ground covers of that sort as well. We're coming up on winter. Yep. So what are your some of your favorite winter plants and why? Um, when people ask me how they can make their garden look prettier in the winter time, we have an advantage here, which is that it's sunny a lot of times in the winter, and we don't get that cold, we don't freeze that much. So there's a lot of flowers that can be really, really pretty here in the winter time. And they're very familiar ones, pansies and violas. I'm particularly fond of the violas and the Johnny Jump Ups because they'll just They'll even take some shade. They're better in sun in the winter, but they'll take some shade. And they hold their flowers up above the dirt, whereas pansies, every rainstorm, they go face down into the mud. So if you are looking for pansies for bedding plants out in your garden, look for the smaller flowered hybrids that you can even tell right in the pot. They're up clear from the foliage. You know, they're not these giant ones that, that just have big, big, thick petals. Those are wonderful flowers, and I grow them in pots. But when you get a lot of rain, they just kind of fall face first down. The violas in particular, Johnny Jump Ups, and the new hybrid pansies that are smaller flowered. One group, though, I think that, that more of you should be growing are these new dwarf snapdragons. Uh, they bloom all the time. I am almost selling them year round now. I don't sell them in July and August and September, but I can sell them all the way into the spring. And they've got funny names like, the first one was Floral Carpet, and then there was Tahiti Series. Now there's these Snaptinis, uh, which are dwarf snapdragons. They get about a foot tall. They, make, they look like a little bush, and uh, they bloom no matter what. Old snapdragons were day-length responders to bloom. 
they bloomed as the days were increasing in the spring. Day length was increasing in the spring. So you plant them in the fall or the early spring. They bloom heavily in the spring and into the early summer, depending on where you're listening. Many years ago, day-neutral snapdragons came on the market of the flower no matter what. And those are mostly what garden centers sell now. So if you plant them now, they'll have some blooms on them. Those will, they'll hold those blooms and initiate some more right on through December and January. They won't even be harmed by temperatures in the mid-20s. And they'll continue initiating flowers all the way into May or even June. And I've had them blooming right on through the summer. And so these are, these are dwarfer plants. You don't have to stake them. They give lots and lots and lots of color. And of course, kids love snapdragons. I mean, it's one of those great plants for, for all ages. Plus, with these newer, shorter types, they're great in containers. So even if you just want to do like a barrel or a planting of something, they work for that. Whereas the old-fashioned kind, which I still grow, three feet tall, that's not going to be so great in a container. And that's for the annuals. What about some perennials that have showy flowers in the winter? There's two very popular ones that I think more people are, are getting into or should get into. The one is Virginia. Virginia. I always have to spell it B-E-R-G-E-N-I-A. Common name, pig squeak. Oh, you got to change that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come up with it. I'm told that if you take a leaf and rub it between your fingers, sounds like a squealing pig. I don't know who figured this How out. How many people these days know what a squealing <laughs> pig sounds like? Not that? pleasant, actually, but uh, it has a pink flower in the middle of the winter. So that's a perennial, and it's easy to grow, and it takes shade. It's got these big, shiny leaves. Very cool. Hummingbirds visit them. I have no idea if they're getting nectar from them, but because they're blooming in January, February, I know they go to them. I've watched that part anyway. Uh, I think hummingbirds in January, February here will go to any flower you have in your garden. They do seem to like the Virginia, spelled Virginia, if you want to look it up. And they, how tall are they? They're only about a foot tall, and they spread slowly. They sort of trail across the ground by these short rhizomes. And they bloom steadily, generally starting in January, February, and into March. So they're a midwinter bloom. The other that's just become unbelievably popular, and I don't know how far into the USDA zones these grow, but the hellebores, hellebores, H-E-L-L-E-B-O-R-U-S, hellebores orientalis, the Lenten rose, the Christmas rose, the, there's a couple other species. Uh, the range of colors is phenomenal. They will grow in shade. They'll grow in total shade and bloom, which is unusual. There's not that many things that bloom in total shade. And they have these flowers that look like an old-fashioned single rose. And while they used to just be basically shades of pink, now there's purple and yellow and a whole bunch of other colors. Very, very easy to grow. I should mention they're poisonous. So those of you who are concerned about that need to know that. But there's something that blooms starting here in our USDA zone, our sunset zone, about January and they bloom all the way into February, March. How big? Uh, most of them, the foliage is about 12 inches and the blooms stand a few inches above that. There's a couple of them that have bigger, coarser toothed leaves, the Corsican hellebore, which are actually quite striking, uh, quite interesting garden plants, much less shiny, woodsy looking, more Mediterranean looking They're from Corsica, so that makes sense. And uh, those are seem to be a little more drought tolerant. This is one of those plants where when we had our major drought several years ago. I saw people putting in hellebores and then coming in and telling me they're having to water them all the time. It is true that regular hellebores orientalis is not a low water plant. They'll tolerate it, but they're going to be the plant in the border that tells you when to water. They will collapse from wilt. And if you don't water at least once a week, they'll probably show some real stress. But the Corsican one, which has these, these grayish green and tooth leaves, are actually more drought tolerant. 
And those are the showy flowered perennials. There, I have a favorite for winter, which is not big flowers, but there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And that's the Uriops. It has bright, beautiful yellow daisy flowers on a yeah. bush. It's, I, I encourage people to put it where they can look out their window and, and have this cheerful little thing when we have our cold, wet, rainy, dismal days. Yeah, it's yellow. It's bright yellow. You can see it across the yard. You can see it from the kitchen window. And they're beginning to flower now. They start in October. They bloom through the winter. They'll be in full bloom in January, which there's not that many shrubby things that do that. And they'll actually continue, like many daisies, they'll continue right through the mild weather of spring and then typically stop as we get hot. But this is a shrub. It's a background plant. I mean, a, a, a Uriops by its third year is about three by three. Eventually, it's one of those plants that we tell people is kind of short-lived in the sense that it'll sort of fall apart in four or five years. It'll become open and leggy. You can try cutting it back. You can, you know, try and pinch it as it grows. Or, you know, how about just put in a new one every few years? It's, it certainly grows fast enough. But they're bright yellow, and you've got two choices. You've got green leaves, and you've got gray leaf. Those are the two types of Uriops pectinatus, the golden bush daisy. Midwinter bloom is great on those. Also, we should mention for fragrance, one of our very favorite plants. Starcococa. It's initiating flower buds right now. It's a great shrub that has little tiny, tiny, tiny flowers, but they have this incredibly sweet, almost gardenia-like scent. And in my garden, they typically start blooming about mid-January. So they give them, and that bloom goes on for several weeks. The other midwinter bloomer, we sell loads of them. We always tell people about how difficult they are, well, how easy they are to kill, is Daphne Odora, the winter Daphne. And that's just insanely fragrant, smells like spicy lemon gardenia combination. Uh, very, 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 very vulnerable to crown rot in the summertime, but uh, people keep trying to grow them anyway in spite of in spite of all that. Whereas Sarcococa, I have a planting of five Sarcococa shrubs I put in the mid-1980s. I've never pruned them. I've never done anything except when they're crowding the path a little bit. After 30 years, they're the height of that window, which is six feet up off the ground, and it took them 30 years to get that tall. I could easily have kept them down. People do clip them like a head, so they're sometimes called Victorian box because they kind of resemble a dark, shiny-leafed boxwood. So you don't have to prune them, and if you don't, they make a really lovely background plant and eventually get some pretty good size to them. But 30 years to six feet, that's not a very fast-growing plant, and they will grow and bloom in total shade. And there's so much fun to say, sarcococa. There's two types. There's sarcococa ruscifolia, which is what we're selling, which has a leaf that looks like ruscus. There's a helpful descriptor. What's a ruscus? That's a perennial that grows in total shade. So yeah, it's true that the sarcococa <laughs> ruscifolia leaf looks like ruscus, all right? So that's interesting. And there's also sarcococa hookeriana humilis, which is a low ground cover form of sarcococa that only gets about a foot tall and spreads by short rhizome like, like roots to make a ground cover. And so it's a cool ground cover plant. It has fragrant flowers, not as powerfully fragrant as the ruscifolia, but it's an actual good tough ground cover for, for example, planting under bamboo or the shade of a high tree. Uh, and would it, would it be compatible with baby's tears? Uh, sure, it doesn't need as much water, but uh, it certainly would be compatible in that situation. Then one of my other would, favorite would oh, go ahead. Would would watering the baby's tears kill the other plant? No, I, the Sarcococa hookeriana can take practically anything. It's one of those basically indestructible plants. So we talked about big flowered plants, uh, annuals, and then smaller flowered plants, perennials, and yep. then fragrance plants. But let's talk about the things that it's not the flower that's so beautiful and so showy. What about things that have 
winter color in their leaves or things yeah, like we, that? We have a lot of broadleaf evergreen shrubs here. You know, it's a, after we've had a couple of rainstorms, Pittosporum tabira looks great. It's a very common landscape shrub. The variegated form looks really nice. Once all the ash and dust has been washed off the leaves by a couple inches of rain, it actually is a very attractive plant. I know that flower arrangers like to use it in their flower arrangements. One that I really like and I like to popularize as much as possible here is the Viburnum tinus, which has nice foliage. It makes a nice, well-mannered shrub. Gets about six to eight feet tall in the case of the most common type. Flower buds are already initiating. The blooms are small, but there's a lot of them, little white blooms, a pink bud opens to a white bloom. And then those are followed by these really pretty steely blue berries that are attractive in the winter and into the spring. And as far as I can tell, the songbirds seem to like them because I know they disappear anyway. I do see songbirds on this plant. Listeners in much colder climates, you've got a lot of different viburnums you can grow. Uh, we don't have that many that do well here in the Valley Heat. Some do, the Sondanqua viburnum and a couple others. I think if I were to visit Morton Arboretum in Chicago, I'm told I would see some really astonishing large species of viburnums there. But here in the Valley, the viburnum tinus is a really nice winter color. It's just an attractive, clean plant, sort of a hedge-looking plant most of the year, and then you get the bloom in the wintertime. Another one that I think I like, uh, although people often recoil from the spiny leaves, is the whole genus of Mahonia, which taxonomists have regrettably moved into the Barberry genus. So now you'll find Mahonias under the genus Berberus. I don't like that association because Barberries are really spiny and Mahonias are only kind of spiny, but uh, we're still calling them Mahonias. Mahonia aquifolium is our Oregon grape, which is a weird name but it has a sort of a look like a holly leaf. Uh, you get some red coloration on the leaves and when you get cold weather, some of the leaves turn red. And in midwinter, getting back to blooms, they pop out flowers, bright yellow flowers, and they'll grow in total shade. Uh, the regular Mahonia aquifolium is our native species, a native in the coast range and up into Oregon. Bunch of cultivars of that. Shade tolerant, reasonably sun tolerant, uh, quite drought tolerant if it's in the shade, prefers more water if it's in the sun, but adaptable to a wide range of conditions. Shiny green leaves all the time, and then all of a sudden I'm very accustomed to going out in January and being surprised by my, my, my Mahonia being in bloom. And related to it are the Chinese Mahonias, which are big, dramatic, plants, put them where you'll never have to prune them because you want to see a spiny leaf. It's really a spiny leaf, but all of a sudden these big candelabras of yellow flowers in January here in the Sacramento Valley and followed by really pretty steely blue berries. And back to those ground covery shrubs, we talked earlier about the Sarcococca bucariana humulus. There's a very similar Mahonia called Mahonia repens. Repens means creeping and it grows the same way. It's another one that grows about a foot tall spread steadily by these rhizome-like roots to make a ground cover. I have a huge area of it after about three decades on my property underneath my Japanese maples. And that makes a beautiful ground cover there, just shiny green leaves all the time, ranging from bright sun to total shade. And it also gives little yellow flowers in the late winter. So it's another ground covering shrub that can hold its own against both shade and root competition, Mahonia repens. So for listeners who are trying to write madly and can't get all this stuff down, uh, <laughs> go to Don's website, his business website, and look for some of the articles because there you can see written down the names and things like that. I know you can go to our archives, you can pull up the show, you can play it, stop, write, go back, and you can do all that stuff. 
but you can also read it. So Don, where are your articles these days? Uh, Redwoodbarn.com, there's a whole, you know, a whole index to the articles. Also, not long ago, I put up a link on the right-hand column that says, what grows here? And that has a lot of lists. And even if you're not here, even if you're in a climate zone that's very different, at least the plant lists are there. And so you can read about them there. Also, one thing, for those of you experiencing winter that's going to be more dismal and isn't suitable for all of these types of things, a really simple way to get some color indoors is to go out and find an amaryllis bulb. This is the simplest thing in the world. We're talking about winter color. All right, this is a totally different tack. Amaryllis, the, the true, what we call Christmas or Dutch amaryllis, uh, these are not, not the naked ladies we were talking about earlier. That's, the, that's actually the genus Amaryllis. These are in the genus Hippiastrum. And you often get them as holiday gifts. People give you the bulb already potted, or they give you a kit where it's a bulb and some soil and a pot. Or these days, some of the companies have learned that the poor thing will bloom no matter what. And so they're literally waxing the bulbs, putting sparklies on them and selling them and telling you to set it in your windowsill and it'll bloom for you without soil. Well, that's true. That is kind of a rude thing to do to the bulb, but it will bloom even without soil. But now, late October, if you plant a amaryllis bulb that was grown in the Southern hemisphere, it will probably bloom in time for Christmas because it takes about seven, eight weeks to get going and to give that bloom. And I mentioned the Southern Hemisphere because we get amaryllis bulbs from Holland, that's in the Northern Hemisphere. We get amaryllis bulbs from South Africa or Peru. Those are in the Southern Hemisphere. If you bring those into your house and pop them up and put them in a window, they think that they should start to grow because summer is on its way. And the natural bloom cycle for the amaryllis bulb is June or July. Uh, so if you bring them up from the Southern Hemisphere, that trigger happens almost no matter what. In fact, you'll see them in the boxes in the garden centers already sending up flower buds in some cases. Put that in a pot with any kind of potting soil. It doesn't really matter what it's in, and they'll bloom typically about eight weeks down the road. The bigger bulbs, really impressive ones that are from Holland, the Dutch amaryllis, they might bloom for Christmas, they might bloom for Valentine's, some of them might even not bloom till Easter because they are off cycle and they are just, they're just confused. They'll give you amazing blooms, they're worth the extra price, but if you really want something blooming for the holidays, look for the ones from South Africa or Peru and uh, go ahead and get them potted up now. You should have some bloom by the holidays. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT-LP, 95.7 in Davis, California. What a wonderful...